Welcome to Decoding Hate. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. In today's episode, we take a global perspective on how the internet, the rise of social media companies, and the use of AI in content moderation affects users around the world. And we touch on some novel approaches to bringing humans and context back into the loop to improve AI's performance. My guest today is Dr. Sahana Udupa, a professor of media anthropology at LMU Munich. Professor Udupa leads the AI for Dignity project, which won the European Research Council Proof of Concept Award last year. The project will develop a collaborative AI model to tackle online extreme speech. Professor Udupa is also a senior research partner at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity. In 2020, she co-authored a research review entitled Hate Speech, Information Disorder, and Conflict. And she recently co-edited an upcoming volume entitled Digital Hate, The Global Conjuncture of Extreme Speech. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Katie, for having me. So I want to start by talking about some definitional things, because this is a podcast about hate speech, but that's not really a term that you have used in in much of your work. You focus instead on extreme speech. Can you tell us why that is and, and how you define it? You ask about extreme speech and why I use that instead of hate speech. Uh, my first impulse to propose the concept of extreme speech came from the realization that there was very little ethnographic knowledge about people and their lived worlds that compose, perpetuate, and normalize vitriolic speech acts online. So uh, at the outset, let us remember that hate speech is an important concept. So when Jeremy Waldron defines hate speech as dehumanization of members who belong to another group or believe to belong to another group, and reinforcement of the boundaries of the in-group against the out-group, we should actually take it as foundational premises for marking problematic speech. So extreme speech is not meant to replace hate speech or other related concepts, but uh, our aim is to open up areas that hate speech research has not explored fully and also highlight the limitations of hate speech and other related concepts. Now, what are these limitations? Hate speech comes primarily from legal normative definitions, and you also have terms like political extremism or online terror, which are rooted in a discourse of securitization, right? So it's the security discourse. So in these definitions, hate speech is approached primarily as a discourse of pathology, right? And therefore, uh, the uh, need is to diagnose and preempt or mitigate its negative effects. So you already know how it looks like. So what we're trying to do with extreme speech is to take a step back and ask, how can we understand this phenomenon in its fullest possible scope before we begin to classify and isolate problematic speech? And two perspectives are important in this exploration. One, is ethnographic sensibility to historical awareness. Now, ethnographic sensibility is about keen and grounded understanding of the complex realities uh, that surround online speech and also to explore online speech as a cultural practice and not just a legal regulatory problem. 
And uh, this is interesting because uh, the moment we talk about this as a cultural practice, the question is, can we have a uniform definition of civility or politeness based on which uh, could we have a uniform approach to transgressions that can be easily named as hate speech, right? The answer is no. There are cultural struggles over meanings of civility itself. And this leads to the ambiguity of online speech contexts. And this is not just a fine-grained theoretical objection, but a very practical one. So hate speech discourse has led to regulatory excess and misuse. Governments have squashed dissenting voices by invoking the hate speech discourse. And moreover, if we already know how hate speech looks like, uh, we do not understand how and why people indulge in it, what motivates them, what are the evolving styles, routines, and practices. And very important, how do vitriolic expressions begin to kind of cunningly slide into the normal, right? How do they enter the lives of online users in mundane ways? And how do they thereby reconfigure what is considered as mainstream, normal, or legitimate cultures of political discourse? So extreme speech research has taken up these questions and uh, we've turned the focus on media practice, which means we ask what people do that's connected to media. Uh, this is important because we are able to avoid predetermining the effects of online volatile speech as vilifying, polarizing, or lethal. So with extreme speech, we are signaling a spectrum of practices rather than a sort of easy binary between speech that is acceptable and speech that is not. So what we carry out is conjunctural analysis. And we ask how different actors, affordances, and affects come together in historically specific ways uh, to constitute these problematic speech cultures and what kinds of political formations ride on these cultures, right? And this kind of analysis is very different from assessing social and political worlds based on predetermined normative categories. And finally, this uh, kind of contextualized understanding calls for a global comparative analysis. Uh, we have to widen the lens beyond the West and extend the focus into the global South where online worlds are growing at a very rapid pace. So as a concept and as a research program, extreme speech is therefore ethnographically rooted, historically aware, and global in its comparative focus. And gleaning from cases around the world, extreme speech analysis has highlighted that in the last two decades, vitriolic cultures have precipitated a condition of violent exclusion. And this is based on different vectors of social differentiation, race, gender, religion, nationality, ethnicity, and so on. And we have defined this as uh, the global conjuncture of extreme speech. I think it's so interesting because it seems, you know, hate speech looks at the sort of content itself of the words and, and to some extent the intent behind them. What you're talking about is, of course, looking also, sort of broadening that lens and looking at what leads to it, what enables it, what encourages it in terms of the history and the, the, the culture and all of that. And then you also have, of course, people who are looking just at dangerous speech and think that that's where the focus should be. So I think it's an interesting, it's sort of, I see it on a spectrum, I suppose. I don't know if that's that's true or not, but I certainly do see that spectrum. So you just touched on it and I want to follow up on it, the sort of expansion of social media and digital media, in particular, the internet, um, and how that's having an effect not 
only in, in North America and in Europe, obviously, but in other parts of the world as well. So you've done a lot of research, particularly on India in this context. And so I want I was hoping you could talk about what you've discovered in the course of that research, particularly about how the growth of social media and social communication has some real world consequences. Right. Uh, in India, internet enabled social networking sites and messaging services have in fact raised the possibility of wider democratic participation, which means many more people are directly participating in political discussions. There's a lot of energy. Uh, but they've also created, unfortunately, focal points for expressions of hate and exclusion, right? Uh, therefore, uh, the digital participatory condition uh, comes with ambivalent effects, right? On the one hand, it can really provide the channels for directly participating in political discussions for a range of people. But at the same time, it could take regressive uh, sort of tone. So one of the key findings of the study is uh, the prominence of what I describe as nation talk. And nation talk refers to cantankerous forms of engaging with the idea of the nation and relations of national belonging. Online media have provided a significant platform for right-wing ideologies and also different kinds of contestations to this ideology. So uh, what is interesting is precisely through such confrontations and online bickering, nation has become an even more reified category, right? It has become a ground to define the boundaries against minorities. In fact, during the 2019 general elections, we analyzed over 15 million tweets and retweets in India and found that nationalism, anti-nationalism and related words appeared in the top 5% of all unique terms in the entire data set. So it was clearly one of the most resonant uh, discourses around the election time. And it continues to this day. And this could definitely have exclusionary effects. So abusive humorous means and digital evidence building are key ways for these groups to engage their audience online. Whether this leads to actual physical violence is something uh, that should be explored only with uh, comprehensive case study-based fieldwork. And this kind of research is carried out in Kenya, South Africa, and other places by Eugenio Gagliardin and others. Uh, they have suggested that particular social media discourses could escalate conflict situations. In India, I have documented uh, what was uh, described as a social media riot. It was not an ordinary riot, but it was called a social media riot because uh, a video was making rounds on WhatsApp before a planned protest rally. So this was a very complex social event because protesting Muslims were accused of being incited by videos um, that claimed to depict a violence in Myanmar and Northeast India. Later, it was debunked as concocted and mashed up. So you have all these different circulations, what I call a subterranean flow of rumors, right? It doesn't appear as mainstream, but there's always this uh, under, underneath you have these flows. Uh, so it's although it's very difficult to pin down causality between online extreme speech and offline violence, uh, we can clearly identify trends and correlations, right? So in certain cases, there will be a peak in extreme speech expressions prior to a violent episode. So that way, we begin to notice the significance of online discourse in uh, these episodes. I think that's really very interesting. And I know the hate lab in the UK has done a lot of work around this and Brexit in particular, which is also quite related to. But I think it's also, you know, something we've 
I've touched on with quite a few guests in this podcast so far is that, as you say, this nationalism discourse is also happening now in privately controlled spaces, right? So you have these social media platforms that are private companies that are now regulating the discourse in a way that is really interesting, especially when you think about it in terms of democratic discourse and and something as fundamental as national identity or nationalist rhetoric. And so I think that's a really interesting point. Over the course of the last two episodes, we've examined content moderation by internet platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. My guests have highlighted some of the issues this raises, from a lack of diversity in boardrooms to AI's discriminatory impacts on marginalized groups. I asked Professor Udupa for her reflections on how content moderation processes are unfolding and the risks we should be aware of. This is, this is a very important question, and I'll, I'll keep it very brief because there's already so much discussion around this. And uh, we all know artificial intelligence is now being increasingly deployed to detect and take down online hate content. Uh, I, I could quote a Time magazine report, which was published in 2019, and it said in the third quarter of 2019, 80% of content that was removed from Facebook for violating community standards came from AI-assisted detection. This looks like a very impressive number, but there are vast challenges, including lack of AI competence in languages other than big languages, such as English, Mandarin, and Spanish. In fact, the same time report cautioned that languages spoken by linguistic minorities are the hardest to be affected by this disparity. And we saw that uh, in the case of Northeast India. Uh, Companies have also outsourced extreme speech moderation. This is something that has attracted international attention. Uh, Journalistic reports have revealed poor working conditions in these outsourcing arrangements. There are enormous levels of emotional stress when moderators are exposed to disturbing content. Uh, In fact, a recent NYU Stern report called for ending outsourcing altogether in this area. It has urged Facebook to provide secure employment to content moderators and also bring content moderation practices under the oversight of experienced company executives. So what these companies are doing is, you know, years of uh, outsourcing uh, low-level technology work. We saw that happening with uh, BPO, business process outsourcing, call centers, etc. The same infrastructure is now being tapped uh, for content moderation as well. Right. And the documentary film, if you remember, Cleaners, uh, directed by Hans Block and Moritz uh, Rizabek, has also exposed various facets of the outsourcing industry of digital cleaning. And Sarah Roberts' study has also systematically documented how Silicon Valley corporations render this label, labor invisible. Uh, in fact, I have discussed this problem through a decolonial reading of digital data relations in a book that I'm co-writing with the anthropologist Gabriel Dathathrayan. So uh, on the one hand, we talk about uh, language variation, and then we are also talking about uh, outsourcing arrangements, which are not fair. And uh, the other thing that companies are doing is uh, crowdsourcing, right? They've invited interested online users to enter expressions on different kinds of interfaces they have developed, and this data could then be used to train the models. And if you take Perspective API, a joint creation of Google's counter-abuse technology project in Jigsaw, for instance, um, it uh, gives uh, toxicity scores, as they call it, to expressions that you enter. Uh, In fact, I just briefly forayed into it and learned that it was not able to pick up several expressions because of language and context. 
So we see there are huge challenges and uh, uh, we could just summarize this as the problem of unevenness. Unevenness at different levels, language, context, labor arrangements and technology deployment. And in addition, studies have also shown bias in the AI systems. And these studies have challenged the claim that AI can be a solution to human bias, because that's the argument that everyone makes, right? AI can somehow overcome human bias. In fact, these studies have shown that uh, ossified categories get into AI-assisted models. And for those who are looking closely into these systems, it's commonplace to recognize that AI can only learn from existing classifications. And therefore, it can be only as fair as humans, as uh, Constance de Saint-Laurent says, right? And Taina uh, Butcher, who has a great book on algorithms, uh, she goes further to elaborate, and I quote her, being part of databases means more than simply belonging to a collection of data. It means being part of an ordered space encoded according to a common scheme. And I end the quote. Here we might refer to anthropological scholarship on archives. I have argued that digital archiving is an active political practice because it involves human decisions to collect, curate, label, circulate, and restrict data, right? All these are formations of data that we need to pay attention to. So this fundamental processing of ordering data is something that has to be made transparent through critical research on AI-assisted moderation practices. Right? Unless we understand how this is being done, how do we actually get to know how the AI system has been working? Uh, companies, in fact, have not been too forthcoming in allowing researchers access to these processes. So we hope more and more companies provide this access and participate in this you know, collective critical effort to understand these systems better. And therefore, on the one hand, there is a problem of bias and worse still, we don't know how much and how this bias creeps into AI systems that big data companies have been developing. So th th that's a challenge. You've touched on a lot of the challenges of, of AI, um, including obviously the bias angle, which I think even though perhaps all we know is really the tip of the iceberg, there are some really I was going to say shocking, perhaps not shocking, but really very worrisome examples of natural language processing and how it disproportionately targets and affects already vulnerable groups. But we just don't know more. Is that representative? Is that a one-off? I suspect not, but we really don't, um, we don't know more. So I guess with these drawbacks and challenges that you've raised, why are we relying on on AI, like, are there benefits to it that, or is it an, just a necessary evil at this point that these social media companies need it? Uh, scalability, definitely, right? The sheer volume and speed of online speech requires automation solutions in any effort to moderate this. Uh, and of course, aside from scalability, AI-assisted systems are expected to reduce costs, <laughs> at least from the perspective of companies, this is a major thing. And uh, it is also expected to decrease human discretion. And it is sometimes seen as positive because the assumption is that there is some neutrality to AI decisions. But as I commented, this assumption is very contested. Uh, but there is certainly one advantage, the advantage of reducing human emotional labor that is involved in removing objectionable and disturbing content. 
So uh, we'll have to see. And that's clearly why we see that there has to be a very uh, robust hybrid model uh, where machines are involved. At the same time, human annotators are also involved. You've, you've touched on this a couple of times, and it's something that Jillian York, when I spoke to her for this podcast, talked about as well. And I, I know she was, I think she was interviewed for The Cleaners, the documentary as well. And, and she, I'm going to butcher her quote, but it was beautiful about how, you know, at what point do we say, are we comfortable outsourcing the emotional toll of viewing these really horrible, sort of the worst of us, right? Um, images and and text to people in the global South so that people in the global North don't have to see it. And I think that's something that I don't think has been talked about enough and certainly needs to be grappled with as well. In fact, more to that point, when we talk about the global South, of course, um, we know what we mean by that. But also, one must remember that these outsourcing arrangements are working within uh, Western metropoles. There there are these outsourcing arrangements. Um, A very recent testimony by a content uh, moderator in Berlin, she has actually come out in the open and she has shared her experiences of working for this company, Facebook actually, but a company that got the contract. So she was not a direct employee of Facebook. Uh, So she says that most of them who worked on these uh, uh, moderation contracts were immigrants. So you see, even within these Western metropoles, you have what we call marginalized Souths, right? So you have Souths in the so-called global north now. So that sort of marginalized labor is uh, being tapped and drawn into moderation practices. So I think this, this, this division has to be really questioned. I had not seen that. That's a really very good point as well. So then going back to how, I suppose, the process of how AI is being used and and draw out some of the other um, shortcomings. You've written a lot about machine learning models in particular and, and how their focus is perhaps not where it needs to be, that there's insufficient contextual knowledge of the actors and networks' meanings underpinning hateful content. So can you explain um, what you mean by that? One of the key arguments of extreme speech research is that online media culture should be seen as a context in itself and not merely as a channel for discourses produced outside of it, right? Uh, There is already so much discussion around this. So uh, people have been saying that online anonymity is the key culprit. And because anonymity is encouraging people to say things online that are unacceptable in other contexts. But I have kind of pushed back against this overemphasis on digital anonymity because when you look at abusive cultures closely uh, with an ethnographic kind of view, you see that those who abuse do so with keen knowledge about their targets. And sometimes in local abuse cultures, they would even know about the daily routines and other critical details about the individual. Okay, And I've seen political commentators in India who say that uh, these abusers would even know the school their daughter would uh, visit and what time she would go. I mean, these are really uh, scary details that abusers uh, have uh, in their possession. So clearly, anonymity is uh, not that straightforward, right? And increasingly, in fact, a section of online users have begun to see the myth of digital anonymity because they are aware of the digital traces that they leave behind and how these traces could be stored and used by companies and governments. So 
Anonymity definitely does not give us all the answers, right? And neither is this situation only about charismatic populist leaders. Because that's another explanation. So, oh, you know, these populist leaders are uh, hoodwinking the publics and they've bypassed mainstream media using social media uh, to uh, promote their agendas. No doubt they're using the space, but it's also important to move beyond leader-centric analysis. Okay. And then if we turn to online practice, right, uh, we see that exclusionary extreme speech rides on the emotionalities around linguistic innovations, coded expressions, ability to migrate platforms, and what I call layered anonymity. So, uh, in fact, I have argued that fun is a particularly significant effective infrastructure uh, in ramping up online extreme speech among right-wing ideological communities. Uh, because hateful speech rides on so-called creative, funny memes and witty tweets and so on. And this enables a sort of distance and deniability to those who indulge in extreme speech. It muddles moral positions. And in fact, right-wing users cheer up each other, right? There is collective celebration of aggression. So fun facilitates collective pleasures of transgression, uh, which have been effectively channelized by right-wing populist groups. Uh, if I have to use a little more theoretical language, fun is a meta practice that embeds specific kinds of political subjectivities of sparring groups that go any mile to defend their positions, allowing social media actors to distance from and deny the political implications of what they say and share online. And that's why I call it the effects of distance and deniability that fun as a meta practice can embed in online practice. So these are the kinds of you know, new media cultures which are very important to understand, right? And again, this is not a media-centric argument. Exclusionary extreme speech is shaped by, let us remember, longer global process of coloniality. And I approach coloniality as a set of relations that unfold both globally and within societies. And we can understand these relations uh, along three interrelated lines. Uh, one, nation-state relations established by colonial power that frame the boundaries of min minority, majority, and inside-outside. Just imagine, if we didn't have this particular distinction between minority and majority, uh, there wouldn't be many targets for extreme speech, right? It's precisely the rationale of someone inside and someone outside, which is mediated by the framing of a nation state that has led to a whole new world of extreme speech targets, right? And the second set of relations are market relations, again, institutionalized by colonial power. And now we see that manifest as uneven data relations and computational capital, something that we touched upon in the previous uh, comment. And the third interlinked relation is racial relation, naturalized by colonial power, that dispose people as objects of hatred. And unless we place different contexts of online extreme speech within this macro-historical view, our understanding of online extreme speech will be short of explaining these deeper histories. And therefore, I've always said that uh, close contextualization of online extreme speech, which means in terms of paying attention to social media platform logics, online practices, and so on, should go hand in hand with deep contextualization attention to longer historical processes, processes of racialization, and how 
today's social media markets are actually technologizing these vectors and lived categories of social differentiation. So therefore, I'm highlighting these two analytical domains, on the one hand, digital practice, and the other hand, historical factors. And I do that to stress the point that without an understanding of these complex factors, it's really difficult to label extreme speech expressions. And uh, also, it, what really matters is who is peddling extreme speech, right? So when you mark extreme speech, one should also have the understanding of who are these people? And because only when it is peddled by certain kinds of groups, then it calls for regulatory action. Otherwise, extremes could, could also be uh, talking back to authorities, right? So that's, that's why I was talking about regulatory excess. If you don't have this understanding, it's difficult. And therefore, extreme speech expressions uh, have to be actually contextualized in these different ways. In fact, contextualization is such a loose term. Everybody uses it today. Right. Everyone says, hey, we need to have context. But then what exactly do we mean by that? We need to pare it down to different analytical exercises, right? Analytical activities. And uh, we, we should also remember that extreme speech expressions keep changing, right? They are constantly mutating. So you're actually asking too much from the machine. You are asking the machine to discern so many things at once. How is it possible? Tell me. Well, I was going to ask you, in fact, I was going to say, I love the idea that we could build in this context and the context, not just, you know, I, so one of the articles that I read is about drag queens and the way Perspective API has labeled their speech is very toxic, even though it's a reclamation of many of the terms that are labeled toxic. And so, you know, there's context there about who is the speaker, what is the intent? You're talking about context in, in a much more macro way, I think, about knowing, you know, not only the actors, but also the platforms themselves, how they're working and, and what mu meaning is being imbued. But is that something that AI can do? Because it seems like the other side of that is AI is horrible at understanding context. It just can't do it. So is this something that you see as a viable way forward? Like, is this what we should be pushing for? Because if we could, I think that would be great. Right. I mean, there are definitely no easy answers. So let us uh, accept this. This is a this is a huge challenge. So one approach I would say is to involve communities so that we are able to place politics and perspective into AI models. And uh, I, I would say an important study in this direction is what Haji Mohammed Salim and colleagues have described as leveraging a community-based classification of hateful speech. And by which they mean that uh, instead of keyword-based methods, they have pioneered a model that incorporates expressions used by self-identifying hateful communities as training data. So the key here is to source passages from hateful communities that openly identify themselves as right-wing or anti-women, rather than starting with the words selected by annotators, right? But one other way to implement a community-based approach is to involve critical intermediaries such as independent fact-checkers, a kind of bottom-up approach uh, that we are trying to develop. Okay, well, and I'm glad you said that because this AI for Dignity project is, I think, really exciting. And from what I understand from the project is going to do exactly this, so looking at these intermediaries. So can you tell us about this project um, and how it came about? One, one reason was, you know, how, how do we involve communities and how do we identify critical communities? And I propose that independent fact-checkers could be seen as a key stakeholder community uh, who can bring a feasible and meaningful gateway 
into cultural variation in online extreme speech. And that's important because there could be some kind of scalability with machines, but how do you understand the context? So as we talked about, so if human supervision is critical, it is, I think, very important to devise ways to connect, support, and mobilize existing communities who have gained reasonable access to meaning and context of speech because of their involvement in online speech moderation of some kind, right? And I think fact-checkers are distinct from other anti-hate groups because of their professional proximity to journalism, right? Uh, Exposed to volumes of disinformation data um, that also contains hateful expressions, uh, they use uh, directly or indirectly journalistic practices associated with checking and categorizing data. In fact, fact-checkers that we've been talking to are all trained uh, in journalism. At some point, they were also journalists, right? Of course, uh, the plan to involve fact-checkers in this exercise comes with the risk of conflating two seemingly discordant objectives of extreme speech detection on the one hand and anti-disinformation tasks on the other hand. Uh, But I think uh, they appear discordant, but uh, these speech forms come closely packed in actual practice. Uh, no doubt, fact checkers are already overburdened with fact verification related tasks, but they might still f- benefit from flagging extreme speech as a critical subsidiary to their core activities. Because after all, uh, this is a close cousin of disinformation, right? So for fact checkers, this collaboration also offers the means to foreground their own grievances as a target community of extreme speech. And this is something that came up when we were, when I was having discussions with the fact checkers. They said, Hey, we are able to provide you data sets. And how? Because our inboxes are filled with hateful expressions. Uh, And that's understandable because their public role of verification has invited uh, many angry (laughs) uh, groups to comment uh, in a hateful way. And therefore, they are actually sitting on a lot of data, unfortunately, also as targets of extreme speech. So by involving fact checkers, uh, we are aiming to draw upon the professional competence of a relatively independent group of experts who are confronted with extreme speech, both as part of the data they see for disinformation, as well as targets of extreme speech. So the idea is to build spaces of direct dialogue and collaboration between AI developers and uh, independent fact-checkers, and also involve academic researchers. And we are trying to create a sort of triangulation. And through this triangulation, we are developing a process model that can create collaborative spaces beyond the purview of the corporate sector. And this process model, we hope, will bring dynamic reciprocity to hybrid models of human-machine filters. And how did it come about? Um, uh, I've been arguing that global comparative study of online extreme speech obviously means we recognize complex scenarios. And I I gave a taste of this complexity in the previous comment. And this research has been happening uh, because of the ERC grant, not the proof of concept, but the longer project that I have been doing, ERC starting grant project. So We've been documenting this complexity, uh, whether it's uh, about the ground realities or interlocking histories at different scales. And I think this is a very important academic endeavor, right? I've heard people remarking sometimes cynically that academics make everything so complex, right? But this is precisely the mandate before us to bring out the complexity. And this is very critical and it requires time. Uh, As academic researchers, we cannot constantly play to the fast tempos of social media, regardless of how much pressure you have 
uh, to offer some quick solutions or just-in-time comments because we all are under pressure to keep tweeting, right? At least we feel the pressure. We might not actually think of this pressure as real. We can actually resist this pressure. It's up to us. But uh, I would say that it is important to safeguard uh, academic spaces for slow reflection. It's absolutely needed. Uh, having said that, uh, I think it's also imperative that part of what we do uh, should connect with broader pu pu public policy debates. So after all, insights that we gain from painful research has to also speak to emerging concerns and urgent issues. And that's why I thought of AI for Dignity as an intervention. Yeah, I think the AI for Dignity project is so interesting as well, because, and I mean, I've, I've said this about a couple of your comments now, but, you know, people talk about context generally. People talk about humans in the loop and needing community-based solutions, but but the way you're doing it and the way you're describing the work that you're doing, I think, comes at it from such an interesting angle. But what are, what are you hoping to achieve? What are the shorter term and longer term aims of the AI for Dignity project? Uh, so AI for Dignity project's main aim is to develop this replicable process model. Replicability is interesting because uh, we are hoping that what we establish here could be actually replicated elsewhere as well. So in a sort of, you know, context-free manner, not, not context related to speech. I mean that uh, this process could be reproduced elsewhere, right? Uh, which means uh, we, we are talking about uh, organizing counterathon events. We call it counterathon, uh, and it can be organized in different locations and using uh, and improvising on the steps that we will describe in a toolkit that we will provide, right? So the second aim is to establish a sound process of intermediation that can bring inclusive training data sets for machine learning models. So community involvement is critical. Right. On the one hand, we give some practical tips to how to organize counterathon, counter etc. And the second one is the broader kind of, you know, societal intervention in terms of uh, creating this process of intermediation. And we are also interested in examining these data sets for research, uh, especially to see if there are cross-cutting patterns, styles and targets across different national extreme speech scenarios. Uh, we've been talking about these uh, cross-cutting patterns, but how do we empirically establish emerging global trends and uh, locally specific patterns. Uh, we've noticed that uh, a right-wing troll in India gets inspired by a Trump supporter or uh, anti-immigrant discourse uh, in Chile will have some resonances uh, with what is happening uh, in the Philippines, for instance. So uh, we've been kind of, you know, we are getting some data, but uh, uh, we are now trying to closely examine if it's possible through these data sets, we established uh, some empirical evidence uh, for this cross-cutting uh, pattern. So that's another research goal attached to this project. In addition to the ongoing AI for Dignity project, Professor Udupa has been working on an open access volume, which will drop later this year. It's called Digital Hate, the Global Conjuncture of Extreme Speech. So we've talked about AI for Dignity a little bit. I could talk to you about it for a lot longer, but um, I know you've got other things, one of which is this exciting open access volume that you have co-edited, which is, I hope, coming out soon. So what can you tell us about that volume? What you can expect is a global comparative conversation around extreme speech uh, with a fascinating set of grounded studies by leading communication scholars and anthropologists. So it's really interdisciplinary. 
and we've seen this yeah, disturbing trend uh, of exclusionary extreme speech. Uh, it's going on in different parts of the world for far too long. But when the crisis unfolds in the U.S., the capital riot, the world begins to take notice, it looks like. No doubt, of course, the U.S. is a very significant global player and prominent global tech companies are headquartered there. So the focus is kind of justified, but not at the cost of overlooking other regions or subsuming other trends within what is happening in the U.S. And this asymmetry is seen not only in journalistic reports or popular debate, but sadly in academic scholarship as well. So what happens in the U.S. is often seen as the pivotal crisis facing the humanity. And scholars who speak about it are actually at the very center of the debate, citing each other, exchanging each other's worries, and also implicitly, if not intentionally, they draw the terms of debate for studies on other countries or political cultures, right? In communication studies, it's very strange because the unmarked category is U.S. communication. So when they say communication, it's actually U.S. communication. The rest is called global communication, right? Uh, it is changing recently, of course, in recent years, it, we see the shift. But um, uh, towards this effort, I think um, the volume Digital Hate, uh, I'm hoping, will bring epistemic parity because uh, we are trying to present the stories of different countries on their own terms and in relation to one another how they all are affected by online extreme speech in different ways for different reasons and with grave consequences. And again, thanks to the ERC funding, this kind of critical comparative approach to extreme speech was possible because I could invite contributions from fantastic scholars who have been closely studying these regions and documenting uh, the intricate intermingling of factors that shape online extreme speech on the ground. For example, David Katiambo shows that extreme speech in Kenya is also a form of talking back to authorities. And therefore, he urges that the polysemy of extreme speech, that is, its divergent meanings and effects, will be lost if we label it as extreme speech. And Jonathan Karpasong, he sheds light on entrepreneurial disinformation workers in the Philippines. It's, it's a livelihood option for them, right? And Erkan Saka offers a complex picture of political rivalries in Turkey, uh, where people are making allegations and counter-allegations around trolling, right? One would call somebody a troll, and then somebody else would say, no, I'm not a troll, you're a troll. So there are complex political rivalries uh, that are driving online extreme speech. Inda Pratidina, another collaborator, she shows how extreme speech takes a gendered character in Indonesia. And shaming practices that are aimed at female celebrities and female politicians are quite common in extreme speech politics. So what we're doing is we're offering a close view of diverse extreme speech practices. And by so doing, I think Digital Hate Book will widen the debate beyond uh, what is commonly seen as filter bubbles or fake news. I know that the topic is very grim, but I have thoroughly enjoyed working with these great scholars. and. Uh, we have also tried not to essentialize the global south and the global north. And also, as I mentioned, to bring epistemic parity. I hope readers will also find this exploration insightful. So you've just touched on some really interesting examples, which I think show that, and what I expect the book will do, which is what I think your work has done so brilliantly, is to say there are some common 
factors. There are some common ends that we can look to and compare, but there are also some really important distinctions and differences that are culturally rooted, historically rooted. You know, we can't paint it all with the same brush. And I, I think that's sometimes overlooked when the focus on content moderation, on hate speech, on AI do's and don'ts is so focused on certainly America, North America, and Europe. So I think this will be a really important volume to, as you say, hopefully have a, a little bit more parity and, and to shine a light on some places and, and some speakers who are, who are community rooted. Thank you. In the next episode, we'll talk about how internet platforms, states, and regional organizations have responded to the challenges of content moderation and evolved in their approaches. And we'll look to the road ahead, including the impacts of new regulation in the form of the proposed Digital Services Act. My thanks to Professor Udupa for her insights and reflections today, and to the OSCE representative on freedom of the media for the funding which made this series possible. Dan Rutka wrote and performed the music for this series. For more on today's topics, or to share your comments and reactions, visit our website, decodinghatepod.com. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. Thanks for listening.